giving honor to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And to Pastor Gerald in his absence today, with thanks to him for allowing me to stand in his stead. And to all of you who have joined us this morning, with special thanks to friends who have traveled a distance to come and support and encourage me this morning. Good morning. It is so good to be among you today. Before I go into the message, I have to tell you something, and I have something to do before the message. This week in the staff meeting and with Pastor Gerald, we joked how I always seem to draw the short straw (laughs) on the Sunday of the national race incident, and I'm always the one that is preaching. I assure you that we had our calendar planned before the white supremacists did but it always seems to land on me. However, all jokes aside, Pastor Gerald prepared a statement this morning, and I will read it in verbatim. Today, as we gather for worship, coming together not only as members of Calvary Memorial Church, but in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. The white supremacy rally held later today in Washington, D.C. is a reminder that the world is still very much in need of the hope and love of the gospel. While the rally is taking place far from Calvary Memorial Church, nevertheless, Many of our brothers and sisters gathered here this morning feel the impact of this rally in very personal and painful ways. The rally in Washington should be an occasion to boldly proclaim that we as Christians seek a very different agenda, not an agenda driven by fear and hate, but an agenda driven by the love and hope of Christ. It is an occasion to proclaim that the blood of Christ shed for his church is for all the nations, for every tribe and tongue. It should be an occasion for us to pray earnestly that the Lord's kingdom of grace and love would come first in our own hearts and then in our church and then in our nation. And it is most especially an occasion to pray for those in our congregation who are most directly harmed by the systemic and personal racism still so prevalent in our society today. To those of you in our congregation most harmed by all that the white supremacy movement represents, I say to you that we stand with you, that we love you, and that we are praying for you. And together, as our Lord directs and enables, we may work toward being a church that condemns hate and prejudice and that magnifies the love and grace of God until, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, righteousness covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. Amen. Thank God for Pastor Gerald. Let us pray. Father, we bless you for your great love toward us today, that of which we sang today, that affirms us in our faith in believing on 
Jesus the Christ, who suffered for us, was crucified, died, and buried, and rose again from the dead. And we praise you, Father, that you have brought us to the place where you will walk and reside among your people. Oh, God, we are in need of your great mercy today as we come to your word. We need to hear from heaven. We need your spirit to speak to us. We need power to preach and power to be obedient. Would you bless those who have gone on the link retreat? Thank you for Pastor Gerald's heart toward all the members of this congregation. We do pray, Father, that your righteous kingdom would come quickly and that you would reign and that you, Father, would prevail today in Washington, D.C., and Charlottesville and all over our nation. Reign with righteousness in the hearts of your people. Give wisdom to those who lead our nation that they would put down these racist acts and bring about the love of Christ in every area in which we live. We love you today, Father, and we ask that you would exalt your name for the sake of your name to be proclaimed among the nations, and that you would encourage every heart that is here today, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. President Trump recently commented on LeBron James' interview with Don Lemon, who the president called the dumbest man on television. At the end of his tweet, in a sweeping attempt to appear wise about the, the greatest NBA player debate, and also to denigrate James' establishment of the I Promise School for Akron Children, and also to put down King James even more, the president invoked the name of his erroneous, saying, I like Mike. Michael Jordan not known for stepping into discussions by politicians, made a reply tweet of his own. He simply said, I support LJ. He is doing an amazing job for his community. Though supportive of LeBron James, Jordan's comments seemed carefully worded so as not to invoke the ire of the president and his supporters, or maybe even lose some of his own popularity in the Twitterverse. But this did not work. At least it did not work for Shannon Sharp, the retired all-star NFL champion and host of the sports talk show Undisputed, felt that Jordan did not do enough to put the president in his place. In a shortened version of his comments on his talk show, Sharp tweeted, quote, I was disappointed in Michael Jordan's response. Michael wants to swim, but he doesn't want to get wet. That is, Michael Jordan wants to seem like he is supporting James while playing it safe toward himself at a time when a harsh critical voice seems needed. He wants to contribute but from a distance at which his clothes will not be soiled by the mudslinging. He wants to swim, but he wants to swim without getting into the water. Swimming without getting into the water is an appropriate word picture for much of our evangelical approach to helping the needy, the marginalized, and those unable to improve their social status in common society. That is, 
Every day we see, and maybe we are overwhelmed by the number of people without food and water, clothing and shelter, who are without hospitality in a foreign land, or who are without people to visit them in their periods of illness or incarceration. Our conscience tells us to offer some help, and it might move us to volunteer greatly, to give somewhat sacrificially, and to pray generally. But these are measures that allow for the vast majority of us to backstroke on plush carpeting and soft couches and to sip out $3 and $4 iced coffees when we are done stroking. They do not really make us look into the face of those dire for help and get involved in any way that will bring mercy and joy and help and refreshment that they need and desire. We still can make online contributions or volunteer with our small groups and our office to help. And yet, we can do our best to avoid eye contact with an individual who might personally and individually ask us for a handout. We can act like we don't see them. At stake, however, is much more than loss of points on the popularity scale in social media, which can be recovered as soon as the next wave of Twitter bursts goes by. When it comes to getting involved in work to better the lives of those socially helpless, swimming wet or dry is a matter of eternal life or of eternal damnation, says Jesus. For our wet or dry choices reveal whether or not we have hearts transformed and guided by love for Jesus. They reveal whether or not we see Jesus when we see people who are in need. At the end of Matthew 25, Jesus describes for his disciples the final judgment. This is the moment in the history of the universe that will be the proclamation of eternal joy for some and eternal wrath for others. In this scene in Matthew 25, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, he will sit in the place of rule as a monarch coming to judge his subjects. His holy attendance will be angels in numbers too far great of a count to measure. And this is the fourth time Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew. All people from all nations and ethnic groups will be gathered. Not one person will escape standing before the judgment of Jesus. He is the judge of the living and the dead, says the Apostle Paul. He is the judge of all the earth, says the Jewish patriarch Abraham. And he is the one to whom the Father has committed all judgment, says Jesus himself repeatedly in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the judge, will separate people in judgment to his right, which is the place of honor, and to his left, in a way an ancient Near Eastern farmer would separate goats from sheep before returning them to the pens at night. Allowing this scene of judgment to sink deeply into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our spirits is the first step 
toward having the right response toward those in need of help. For all things, we will be judged. There is no escaping standing before the perfectly righteous God who demands perfect righteousness from every one of us. We will stand before him more naked than if we were standing in our birthday suits. That is, we will stand before him exposed with every word exposed, every deed, every intention, every motivation, thought, and goal is what the scriptures teach us. We will not get to argue back and forth with Jesus about what we said and why we said it like we're in some sort of level score. No, I didn't really say that, Jesus. You have it all wrong. No, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. We won't have opportunities to do that. And Jesus will get to say of every day of our lives, I saw what you did last night. I know what happened in that incident. If you're not getting it, this is a very fearful scene. We all hope to be on the right of the judge rather than on the left. But sadly, even some of you here today who will not heed the warning to repent and will not place your trust in Jesus alone and will not yield your life to him, you will walk out of here thinking you have hope to escape the wrath of God when you actually do not. May I make an appeal early in this sermon for you to refrain from hitting the coexist and tolerance bumper sticker default buttons before you really hear what is at stake and what is true according to this passage. I suspect, and you know who I'm talking here today, you who came with a friend, you who are skeptical, I suspect that the exclusive claim of Jesus and Christians that Jesus is the only way to God repels you. However, you find yourself in no better situation if you claim all religions say the same thing or that you can believe anything you want to believe and be safe after death or that all religious ideas should coexist with equal claims to the truth. At the end of all these roads, you still have problems and more problems than you should have with our exclusive claim. Let me explain. If you say all religions say the same thing, then they all should say what Scripture says. And Scripture says that we are a sinful people who have broken the law of God and are deserving of an accounting for that law-breaking and that we will wind up in hell for eternity rather than heaven unless we accept that Jesus is the only solution God will accept for lawbreakers. If you can believe anything you want and be safe after death, you have to ask how you can be certain that what you believe is true since you have not gone past death to return to tell us all what happened. Only Jesus has gone past death, defeated it, come back, and having seen death, Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says your only hope to get past death forever to heaven is believing in him. If all religious ideas should coexist as equal truth claims, then other religious claims have to find Christian truth equal to theirs. 
And here's what the Christian claim to truth is. The only truth about eternal life rests in God's very own son because he has met the standard of righteousness required to have eternal life. If you actually believe that you are going to a happier place when you die, you also have to believe that the place you are going to is going to be free from sin. That the place will be free from sinners, from people who could mess up heaven for you. You are only free from sin when your sin debt has been paid, and Jesus is the only one who has paid the debt for sin by dying for sin and rising again from the dead. The real outcome of your equalized claim is this, Jesus is still the only way. And now that I hopefully have taken your hand off the easy button, I want you to come talk to me about salvation in Jesus after this sermon is done. Jesus is coming to judge the works we have done in this present life. The works do not provide salvation because the kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, before we did any good works, any bad works. The kingdom comes by means of election, as New Testament scholar Leon Morris so boldly said in his Matthew commentary. The works give evidence of salvation within. They don't buy us a place in heaven. Salvation is still by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that biblical faith produces works keeping with repentance from sin. In this passage, the work to be measured is not the ridding of ourselves of vices or the taking on of personal character virtue, but it is the expression of love and care and compassion to people without means to improve their economic, social, or legal situations. For this work, for caring for the destitute, all of us will be judged. All the nations are standing before Jesus. So in order to help us get this work right, Jesus reminds us that we will stand before him as judge in all of his glory. In that grateful day of judgment, when the secrets of all men's hearts will be revealed, as we like to say at Christian weddings, Jesus will speak as king and he will offer a kingdom. He will offer a kingdom as inheritance granted by God the Father on the basis of righteous stewardship, a prerogative the Father has to give as owner of the kingdom. Here is Jesus' checklist of entrance for people who are righteous in their deeds before God. It's very simple. You fed people without food and gave drink to people in need of water. You have taken in people who are strangers or foreigners to you. You have provided clothing for people without clothing. You have visited the sick, not just sick friends. You have visited the sick, people who are sick in need of a visit. You have made trips to incarceration facilities and visited prisoners. That's the whole list. In Chicagoland, we have plenty of opportunities to serve the population of people Jesus just delineated. There are 
people asking for food on the streets, children going to school without food or doing without food during the summer because school is is out and they only get to eat when they go to school. And there are those who have work but don't make enough money to feed their families. There are international students and workers in need of hospitality, some unable to find work, some working only as trafficked slaves. The trafficked need a free room in our homes in which to stay so as to get away from the perceived need to work in a bar or a casino or a hotel or a factory as a slave. And there also are refugees landing here in Chicago for sanctuary. There are others laying in hospital beds and nursing care facilities who have no family and friends visiting them. Having family and friends visiting them is something that we take for granted because we have people who visit us, but there are people who have no one visiting them. And there is the whole mass incarceration complex in which some of those most thrown away by society and often without more legal recourse are granted the opportunity to retain dignity and hope by visits from those from the outside world who demonstrate to the incarcerated that they are not forgotten. That's how you tell someone you're human. We have not forgotten you. Many of us already are involved in serving these populations and others like them. You already host students. You already welcome refugees or went with our team to serve them. You already take in people in need of shelter. You already help those with special physical and mental needs and already give of your time to be with those who are at risk for homelessness or criminalization and you try to prevent such. And you already are sitting with those whose families abandoned them when they announced that they were HIV positive or that they had a different gender orientation. But some of us need to jump into the water and start getting wet. Those of us who are physically and emotionally able to do so even more so than just to write checks and pray. There's nothing wrong with writing checks and there certainly is nothing wrong with praying and we need to pray a whole lot. But for those of us who cannot do more and for those of us who can do more, here are four practical things that we all can do. Number one, first, we must ask the Lord to open our eyes and enlarge our hearts. Ask the Lord to open our eyes and enlarge our hearts. We are not asking to see the desperation. The desperation is so obvious. Instead, what we're asking is for God to help us see Jesus. Jesus says to the sheep, you saw me when I was hungry. You saw me when I was thirsty. You saw me when I was naked and a stranger and sick and in prison. And you fed and clothed and took in and visited me, is what Jesus says in the passage. And they replied, Lord, when did we see you in there? We don't need to see the destitute. We need to see Jesus. 
Jesus is not saying that he is inside of every needy person, nor that being needy gives you a preferential option to heaven for even the needy and the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the stranger and prisoner will be standing before Jesus in judgment because everyone will be there. And the standard remains the same for them. Did you repent from sin and trust Jesus for your salvation? So there are no preferential options for anyone. You don't get to go to heaven just because you are poor and destitute. Instead, Jesus is saying that when you see one in need, you need to replace the identity of that person with Jesus. And you, in effect, say to yourself, now if I saw Jesus coming toward me from a distant place without any relatives or family in this city, would I take him in? The answer is yes. We would give glorious King Jesus our own bed in the best room in our houses because we love him and because our hearts have been transformed by his love. So we don't want to look at the destitute one. We want to look at that one and say, I see Jesus. Let me explain again. If Jesus were incarcerated with the possibility of losing human dignity by being forgotten by the outside world, would we find time in our schedule to visit him regularly or would we be too busy to find time? We would make the time to visit. Jesus, I'm back here a day. How's it going in there? I'm so sorry you are in this situation. If you walked up on the Son of Man and he had a sign that said, I'm hungry, God bless. Would you reach into your pocket, purse, or wallet, or roll down your window and give him some change? No, you wouldn't. Because that would not be enough if it were Jesus holding the sign. Here's what you would do. With tears in your eyes, you would say, wait here, Jesus, I'll be right back. Then you would go over to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or down to Peach Fresh Market and fill up the grocery cart without thought of cost. You would help the bagger bag the groceries as quickly as possible. You would zip back over to Jesus. You would sit with him while he is eating. And never once would you think to yourself that you could have used that money elsewhere or that Jesus needs to get a job. What Jesus is doing by saying that you did it to me when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, is establishing a high bar for the Christian worldview of social service. The question is not about what those in need have done or not done or can or cannot do. The world measures that. Jesus says that the measurement of serving the socially needy is whether or not we see Jesus when we believers look at the need. The heart transformed by the love of Jesus sees Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, you saw me. In his commentary on Matthew, Craig Keener dismisses what he terms a dispensational view of this passage in which this is a judgment of Gentile nations only because the brothers of Jesus, when you saw the least of these, my brothers, the brothers of Jesus would have been Israel. It does not fit, says Keener, with other uses of brothers in Matthew, such as here are my mother and my sister, my brother, those who do the will of God. 
Keener instead favors that the destitute in question are Christian gospel messengers. The note writer for Matthew in the NIV study Bible holds a similar view as do many, many others in their writings. I think the passage is broader than both the dispensational view and the view that it is Christian gospel messengers. And I think it's broader for these reasons. First, Jesus uses brothers multiple ways in Matthew, and it seems here that brothers is a term of endearment for the sake of those who acted rightly, because he only mentions brothers when he talks to the sheep who acted righteously. It is employed in verse 40, but it is not employed in verse 45 to describe the same people to those who acted in unrighteousness. When Jesus speaks to the goat, he doesn't talk about the least of these, my brothers. Second, the final judgment before the Son of Man involves all of the living and the dead, and not just people who will come out of the tribulation period. And third, the limiting terms in this passage do not prescribe the works taking place immediately prior to judgment, but only that the judgment itself comes at the end of the age. The passage concerns all people's responses to the destitute in any age and the judgment thereof when the Lord sits as king in all of his fullness. Second, we must be willing to allow people to take advantage of us and must trust God with our time, money, and things. We must be willing to allow people to take advantage of us and must trust God with our time, money, and things. Jesus affirms and blesses people faithful to serve the socially destitute. He said, blessed are you by my my father. You get to enter into eternal life. But nowhere is there a hint of mention of the laborer involved in what the sheep have done. Now, we do know that taking a stranger into one's house involved and still involves sacrifice of goods, home, comfort, time, and even a sense of total security and safety. Once you invite someone stranger in, you you don't have total security and safety anymore, and neither did they in the first century. Visiting the sick often involves a sacrifice of time, as does feeding, giving drink, clothing, and visiting those imprisoned. You also have to be associated with such persons or for their causes in order to serve them. So there are sacrifices of time and of money and of things involved. Moreover, as said above, being destitute does not absolve one of being sinful or of being a lawbreaker, and a sinful that you invite a sinner that you invite into your home might take advantage of you. In fact, The experience of being taken advantage of or having someone be ungrateful towards your compassion and care and sacrifice is enough to make anyone say, I am not going to do that again, not ever. But we have to remember that God owns all goods and money, and he is the one who marks out our time as his time. We are only conduits and stewards of what we have. It is God's stuff that's being ruined, and it is God's time that is being used, and we are only holding on to things as tools for God to use through us. And if we are only stewards, we can be upset only for so long over God allowing someone to use his things in manners that we would not prescribe. 
Recently, I was having a conversation with the Lord about being taken advantage of and being taken for granted. In the context in which I feel that Pam and I have made many sacrifices, and most of you are aware of what I'm talking about, I don't have to go all into it here, I told the Lord, every, uh, everything you say when you are having a midlife self-centered pity party, and I was having a big one, God, this is not fair. This was a waste of time and a waste of my life. I will never do this again. And on and on and on. You can fill in the rest of the pity party words. But what I was actually saying to the Lord is that my attempt to be obedient to the stewardship to which he called me was wrong. I was saying, God, that obedience means nothing. Just as quickly as I thought that, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and clarified my foolishness by saying, your problem is not being obedient. Your problem is thinking that being obedient would come without pain rather than thinking it should plunge you into the depths of the pains of others at cost to you and with great warfare against you and for the souls you are serving. Yes, serving the destitute, or the trouble, or those in need involve suffering. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, you will need moments of Sabbath and respite, just as missionaries need furloughs and academics and pastors need sabbaticals. The emotional fatigue requires such. But we have to keep hearing the words that Jesus says, come you blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. And you have to play it over and over again. Third, we must rid ourselves of false philosophies that idolize work and personal effort to the exclusion of extending a hand to the needy. We must rid ourselves of false philosophies that idolize work and personal effort to the exclusion of extending a hand to the needy. Here's what I mean. Poverty does not equal sin. Neither does it always result from one's own sin? Poverty does not always come because people do not budget well or because they do not want to work hard or because they did not study in school or because they've committed a crime and they now cannot find a job because they have a felony on their record. That is so not true. And I know that from Proverbs because Proverbs 13.23 says the fallow ground, that's, that's the hard ground where you haven't even sown seed into it. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but is swept away through injustice. And so the sages recognize that there are people who remain in poverty because injustice exists in our world. Some people just are not treated justly, and so they remain in their impoverished situations. Incarceration might be due to sin, and often is, but there is some wrongful imprisonment and much systemic deficit that creates a pipeline for some segments of society to land in prison disproportionately to the overall population. There is no sin in being a stranger, but there are forms of xenophobia that are based in racism and classism, and many are putting it on display today. To the person with a worldview that sees someone from a foreign context and does not offer hospitality or shelter, 
who will not feed the starving, and who also will not visit those alone in their suffering, and, <clears throat> and will not do anything else to help those who are in need, Jesus will say, depart from me. Depart from me and take the judgment that the devil and all his demons will get because they enjoy watching people suffer and doing nothing, and maybe you should join them. Readily, we think of murder, kidnapping, and treason as deserving of the greatest wrath possible. But here, Jesus places a lack of involvement in serving those who cannot benefit themselves in the category with those headed straight to eternal fire and judgment, and with good reason. If you can look at people suffering and need and do nothing, nothing as the goats do here, even though you see the face of Jesus. And Jesus tells the goats also, he said, you saw me. He doesn't tell the goats, you just saw people in there. They ask him, when did we see you, Lord? And he says, you saw me when you were overlooking people. Jesus makes it clear that even though you see his face, you are rejecting him. And rejecting the Lord can only wind you up in one path to one place. Fourth, start small with resources and opportunities that you have before you. In just reading the number of possible ways to help and possibly harm the hurting, because we can harm the hurting also. We can do things that will actually keep them in their cycles. The reading on it is too big. It's for another time. But in just reading about all this, you can be overcome trying to sort through relief and rehabilitation and development. Moreover, there is only one of you per many destitute. Each one of us is only one of us. We can't really help everybody. The numbers of ways to serve is endless. So all we need to do is start small or do what we've been doing. World Vision, our Chicago Marathon partner, has a Matthew 25 challenge based on this passage in which they suggest ways of entering the world of the needy. They say, sometimes skip a meal so you can feel what it's like to go without food in a small way. Sometimes drink only water so you can see how precious water is to life and understand what it means that some people do not have clean drinking water. Sleep on the floor rather than sleep on your bed for a night and don't put your nice pillow down there with you so you can understand what it's like for people to sleep on the ground and not have shelter and they have many more ideas like this you can start by taking their challenge go to world vision or put it in google in their world vision matthew 25 challenge if you are partnering with our local partners one of them just remain faithful and invite another friend from calvary to join you if your home is already open to strangers whether students or workers or someone else share your story with another member and invite him or her or them to pray about doing the same. Call a local hospital, senior home, or incarceration facility and see how you can visit just one person, not everyone, just one person who is receiving little or no visits and invite a friend to go with you. And if you've ever done this, if you've ever stood by side, the bedside of someone in a senior facility who does not get rel relatives visits or visits from anyone and just enjoys you opening the scriptures and reading it to them and you see that big smile verse or them reach out for your hand and say thank you it will change your life forever Amen. glorious 
King Jesus looked down from his home in heaven and saw people who were spiritually naked and hungry and thirsty and sick and imprisoned in sin. And he determined that he was going to get wet for us. He wasn't going to try to swim it off in heaven and remain dry. He immersed himself into our pain and suffering. And he came out soaked in his own blood. And it was at total cost to him. And everyone has taken advantage of him. And often people do it without gratefulness. And yet, Jesus said, I will die for them all. And I will rise again from the dead. And I will offer them life. It is he who offers the kingdom of his father to those who will do the same. It is he who offers that kingdom to those who will see him when they will look at the destitute and say, Jesus, I see you. Let me help you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the words of Jesus that in one sense show us how blessed we are, how much we have, how great your mercy has been toward us. And another sense reminds us that there is so much more faithfulness that needs to be done. God, I'm sorry for my own pity party in this. Thank you for never looking down and telling your father that the obedience was not worth it. Thank you for the grace that is ours in you that clothes us in your righteousness. Thank you for putting on flesh and making your visit among us. Thank you for healing us of all our diseases, the word of God says. Thank you for receiving us as the strangers to heaven and making us be accepted into the family of God. Do the same through us so that one might be pulled back from the brink of starvation. One might find dignity behind bars. One might have a smile on a hospital bed. One might have a place to sleep tonight. We give you thanks for your kindness toward us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.